or introduce it. Um, I there's been there's a lot of interest in, in reading different kinds of texts. People, um, this is something that we have liked to do, and, and there's a lot of interest in this. Um, and I propose that we look at a text. It's a very short, very very short text um, written by a, uh, a a radical French group called uh, uh, Claire Fontaine, which is a, a sort of breakaway faction, I believe, of the of the more well known group uh, known as uh, Tacoon uh, and the and kind of associated groups like the Invisible Committee. Uh, I, we don't know exactly kind of who these people are. Maybe some people do, but um, generally it's sort of anonymous little collectives. Uh, but in similar kind of uh, ideological waters. Um, and uh, so I ask that we take a look at this text uh, because I think that it basically represents uh, one kind of extreme poll in uh, kind of contemporary radical politics. Uh, and it's a poll that I'm quite partial to, but in activist circles, um, I think it's, it's really quite uh, disliked, really, and kind of, kind of dismissed, even. Um, and broadly speaking, it's sort of, uh, just, this is all just sort of background. I have some remarks prepared um, on, on kind of my own perspective and why I'm interested in this. I'm going to kind of try to make a case to you all about it. Um, what I'm doing right now is just kind of giving a uh, very broad uh, kind of background. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, it, the, ideologically, uh, this group is basically, I mean, you, hopefully you all read the text, um, but in a nutshell, um, it's basically kind of the far end of kind of like the insurrectionary wing of kind of ultra-left politics. Um, and yeah, we, I mean, I could give a, I'll sort of talk about it in the context of my talk. I'm going to actually make a somewhat more general presentation to you all. Uh, it's not actually about the text. It's actually about like a larger set of claims that I want to make. Um, but it's, it's closely related to the text, and the text is just one sort of anchor for it. Um, so yeah, so I have some remarks prepared. Um, but does anyone want to uh, talk about the text? Does anyone have anything they want to talk about? Anything they found especially interesting that they wanted to talk about? If not, I'm, I trust, I promise you, in fact, that my uh, presentation will provoke a bit. So, um, but I invite anyone else to say anything about the text, just as a kicking off point. I might, I might later. Okay. I might think about okay. it what you yeah. Anyone? I mean, I could do a kind of, you know, a uh, little like introduction to, or overview of the text. But I don't actually think that that's most interesting. Uh, um, I will, I will actually, but it'll be in the course of my presentation. I'm actually going to make a larger set of claims if I may. Um, okay. So, first of all, I want to I want to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to make an argument, and I want to reflect on this for a minute because I think it's actually really important that radical groups uh, give all of the members and all sort of the people in these groups opportunities to basically kind of do their own thing for a little bit. In, 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 a, in a group such as Plancy, it has stupefied me that there is so little time for people to act, for individuals in the group to actually just carve out a little bit of time and develop a particular perspective of theirs and present it to the group in a kind of focused way, uh, to actually present a series of large ideas uh, in a focused way. There's actually very little time for that. I actually have to kind of ask for the space and time to do this. Um, but I don't think a lot of people would have that kind of, uh, you know, not, not, not as many people are as arrogant or self-important as I am. So <laughs> I actually think it's really important. I actually think it's really important for radical groups mm. to actually make this kind of space for everyone. So uh, I'm, I'm saying this as a preface because I'm not giving you this presentation because I think I'm a fucking genius and I've figured everything out and I'm going to tell you this like brand new product I want to sell you. Uh, not at all. I think this is something that I, I would hope you all want to do also. Um, and so this is me really kind of trying to create a culture of, of this type of uh, uh, larger idea, kind of sharing and developing. Uh, just take it as an example. 
Uh, and so what I want to talk to you today about, really, and, and the, the reading, of, the human strike reading, really is just sort of uh, to show you that I'm not making this up out of thin air, uh, and that there is actually a tradition of, of the kind of ideas that I'm going to be kind of uh, issuing from today. What I want to talk to you is a, is a theory that I have, uh, a sort of larger overarching set of claims about how I think that we can actually make revolution like now. Uh, and I want to focus on this idea of, of immediacy, um, because I think that basically, uh, first of all, one of I'll give you a sort of overview of where I'm going, a sort of roadmap of the things I'm going to try to convince you of in this presentation. The first is that I think revolution should be seen as an immediate goal. Um, I think, we, I think the, the conventional wisdom in most activist circles and in radical circles, in all the Clancy meetings I've been to, with all due respect to everyone, and really with all the activist meetings I've ever been to in my life, for the most part, uh, with the very few special exceptions. Uh, you know, many of us identify as revolutionaries, many of us identify, you know, we, we, most of us support uh, and believe in the necessity of, of complete transformation of society. But we rarely if ever actually talk about that as something that we're actually giving everything we have to try to figure out how to do now in our lifetime. Um, and I think that this is because we actually don't really believe it can be done, uh, to be perfectly honest. I think we hope it can. We sort of want it to. We believe it's necessary. But I actually think, I actually think that at the end of the day, most people in radical circles, um, myself included really, we, we don't believe that we actually know how to do it, and, or that we can, or that it's possible. And because we don't actually believe it's possible, we don't actually take seriously the fact that we actually have to figure out how to do this now. It's not just something we can hope for. If it, mean, if it means anything to be radical, if talking about revolution means anything, it means actually taking seriously the fact that we have to do this now. And if we can't do it now, then it's, it doesn't matter in some sense. Um, because I'm not doing this, I'm, I'm not a revolutionary because I think it's the right thing to do. I'm a revolutionary because I want a fucking human life, like right, I want to live a fucking human life before I fucking die. If, it, if, if a revolution happens after I die, I don't give a shit about it, to be, to be absolutely honest. Um, and so it, that is the first thing that's sort of in the background of what I'm saying. Uh, but I actually do believe that we can make revolution in our lifetimes. I don't think many people do, so I know that I'm sort of going to be arguing uphill, but that's part of the argument that I'm going to be making to you today. The second part of this presentation is that I have a sort of, uh, a, a sort of overarching narrative about how I think that uh, kind of the 20th century, uh, the politics of the 20th century sort of dramatically outpaced radical theory, um, basically. I think the developments of the 20th century happened so fast that our heads are still spinning and we kind of stupidly really only pay attention to like um, a really relatively narrow kind of intellectual perspective um, that we can't even really step out of because the 20th century has just given us sort of uh, this kind of insane human species kind of whiplash that we can't even really uh, take a step back from. I have a sort of story about that. Uh, the third kind of uh, main argument that I want to make is that when you look at the when you look at politics in a certain way, you can actually see um, a certain set of openings for a fundamentally new way of thinking about what it means to make revolution or what it means to be a revolutionary, what it means to live a revolutionary life. Um, it's what I think of as um, kind of a, a, a kind of political, I'm a political scientist by, by training, by profession. So I think about it as a kind of political science of, of liberation dynamics, you might call it. So instead of thinking about, you know, how can we organize to have leverage um, and like get things we want, um, I actually don't believe that's like a useful way of thinking about things at all. I actually think really the only way to think about it is how can we increase liberation for ourselves and for others uh, through techniques that are actually available to us and how can we make those techniques spread uh, at such a scale that it actually becomes a fundamentally uh, politically dangerous kind of macro-social dynamic that politicians and, and corporations can't really control. Um, 
that, that's sort of in a nutshell where I'm going. Obviously, I don't expect you to understand exactly what I mean, but I'm going to try to sketch that out for you. Um, that's what I think of as a kind of political science of liberation dynamics. Um, I'm not going to I'm not going to sort of uh, try to show you in one short talk uh, exactly what that entails, but I'm going to try to sketch for you the guideposts of, of what uh, such a political science would look like as a kind of research agenda and as a kind of practical agenda. Ellie? Yeah. I just want, there's three things. One of them is about like um, the way that revolutionary groups perceive revolution. One of them is about the 20th century and how it's developed, and one of them is about how we have different new ways of approaching liberation. For what it's worth, I have slides and I will share them with you, so it's all, oh, you don't have to worry about taking notes because it's basically all here. Cool. Uh, is, that, is that cool? Um, but feel free to stop me at any time if you want. Um, okay, and then last I'm going to talk about what this actually would look like in practice, right? Because that's what everyone wants to, that's what everyone always wants to know at the end of any uh, question about, you know, or discussion about ideas, right? Uh, so that's a kind of roadmap or an overview. Uh, so on the first point, um, yeah, I don't think that revolution is a sort of distant hope that we should just kind of do our best on. I think it's something that we either have to do now or we shouldn't even bother with it, to be honest, to be honest with you. If, you if, 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 if I didn't think revolution was possible, I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't go to any of these meetings. I wouldn't be an activist. I, 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 wouldn't, I would go enjoy myself um, because that's ultimately what I'm interested in. I'm not, like a, I'm not trying to be you know, like a saint. I'm not, uh, I don't want to impress people with how immoral I am. What I want is fucking liberation as soon as possible because I'm fucking dying. And that is the only reason why I'm interested in revolution. Uh, but this now has kind of uh, a large-scale kind of uh, meaning because in particular, global, global climate change is the obvious one. Here I like the title of Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, right? Uh, I, I, take, I think that that's really seriously. Re I take that really seriously. And I think that that is really important because really, folks, like if we don't overthrow capitalism now, it's kind of game over, you know? Uh, I think that's Naomi Klein's point, and, I, and I'm really sympathetic to that. So global climate change is one big thing that sort of completely changes how we think about revolution, I think. And it, and it really reminds us that if we're going to talk seriously about be, being revolutionaries, we need a specific model in which it can be achieved in our lifetime. Because if it can't, um, we're kind of fooling ourselves, and we're not really going to fool anyone else uh, to, to join us or to participate in anything. The other thing is the global refugee crisis. Obviously, I mean, we are talking about mat, like a massive global, uh, massive global problems of displacement and people's lives being in this kind of uh, th this kind of state where where there is nowhere for people to go. Uh, this and obviously this is only going to get worse with global climate change, with with you know, uh, basically climate migration. Um, that's another reason why I think really it's now or never. Um, also. Um, I think a really important sort of background issue to all of this is uh, the rise of ISIS in particular. We, have, we are witnessing a kind of a rising fascist, semi-global kind of insurrectionary caliphate. And it's, I mean, no one knows. I'm not here to predict what's going to happen. I'm not one of these political scientists who's trying to give you this sort of convincing geopolitical overview about what's going on in the world, what's going to happen in the next 20 years. All I know is like, um, that's just pretty fucking scary, and I think, the, I think the, the West has absolutely no idea what to do about it. But the reason I mention it here uh, is because there's actually uh, things going on with the rise of ISIS, in particular the way that ISIS is sort of attracting uh, lots of different kinds of people from around the world to basically drop everything they're doing and, and go join uh, sort of the, the, the jihadist movement. Um, while I, obviously we don't support anything about their politics, there's a lot to be learned there in terms of social psychology. The simple fact that there are actually lots of people defecting from their status quo comforts to actually go do crazy ass political shit. Um, that is actually happening. And while we don't support, you know, obviously we don't support ISIS, um, there are interesting facts about that process that I think we have to uh, take more seriously. And last but not least, 
um, uh, increasingly brazen police states mean to me, it's really now or never. We really have to kind of up our game and be a little bit more willing to take risks and really kind of fundamentally alter and change and kind of increase the stakes of how we live. Uh, because to be honest, I mean, imagine in 10 years, what, you know, we don't, again, we don't know. I'm not, I'm not making a predictive argument about what's going to happen, but you know, the, the police states in the Western liberal democracies really are getting worse and worse. And, and, and it, it, it is really quite scary. I mean, what we do have is still, at least for the time being, is a modicum of kind of good old fashioned liberalism, at least a little bit, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of association. We're allowed to have these types of meetings. We're not yet being sort of attacked. We're not yet being prevented from having these types of meetings. We are able to basically say mostly whatever we want in public forums. These are privileges. These are historically, these are privileges, right? Uh, that haven't been around forever and all the direction of sort of Western democratic politics uh, seems to be less and less uh, invested in those things and more and more willing to, to, to smash those things. So I don't want us to find ourselves in, I don't want to find myself in 10 years and all of a sudden we're actually not even really able to associate freely. We're not actually even able to speak freely. You know, you see the rise of, of uh, radical pol politics being sort of lumped in with terrorism and, and sort of the surveillance state and the police state. Those things are really scary to me. Again, I'm not saying I know, I know exactly what's going to happen, but I sure as hell don't want to, in 10 years, if we don't even have really freedom of speech anymore or freedom of association anymore, we're going to look back on, on today and we're going to think about all the relative privileges we actually do have right now that we're not making the most out of. We're not making the most out of freedom of speech. We could be saying so many things to so many different people in so many different ways that we're not actually uh, experimenting with at, at any kind of scale that we could be. So, so these are all background conditions that, to me, really kind of increase the stakes of why I think revolution needs to be an immediate goal, even though that sounds crazy. I understand that if I say I want to make revolution before I die, and that is my political goal, and that is how I see the world, that is how I see my political work, you know, most people will see me as a kind of childish, you know, uh, weird kid who uh, has like idealistic notions. I'm, that's probably what a lot of you kind of are already thinking. I know that's what a lot of people think when I talk about these things. Uh, but that's why I need a, a little bit of time and space to make my argument at a little bit more length. Um, okay, uh, I have some sub-slides that I could, I could sort of flush some of that stuff out, um, but I, I, I'll take, let's, let's accept those things as premises. There, there's basically one last one, and that is kind of what I think of as kind of the mental slash uh, social crisis of, of the Western liberal democracies. And this is something that we basically all know. We all know about sort of neoliberalism and mental health crises. We know things about you know, rising suicides, rising uh, things like this, depression, anxiety being increasingly prevalent. Um, we're all, and, and you know, we're all basically aware of, of stress and anxiety. And we know these things are fucking us up. Um, I still think that even in our circles where we're especially keen to this and especially sort of, uh, we acknowledge this to exist. I still don't think that we even take seriously how, how much of a sort of world historical catastrophe, uh, neoliberalism has been for our most basic kind of, uh, spiritual and emotional and intellectual, uh, capacities basically. Um, so all of those things seem to me, to, all of these things basically seem to be getting worse and worse. Uh, and I feel personally that we are at a place where, um, like I, I honestly feel like if I can't figure out a revolutionary project right now that I can significantly invest my life and my being into with a bunch of other people like you all, if I can't do that like in the next few years, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm probably gonna fall off and just go be like a depressed bourgeois like a uh, sad old person. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I actually think that will happen if, I, if we can't actually make, if we can't actually start doing something that could feasibly lead to massive collective transformation in the next few years. Um, so, so that's my, my kind of case for why I think it's really now or never, no matter how idealistic that sounds. Okay. 
Um, so moving on to uh, the sort of the background for the, the real argument I want to make or the real theory I'm going to present you with today is uh, sort of rooted in a, in a kind of narrative about, about the 20th century. And it's kind of unique, so uh, it's not new. I'm not, you know, I'm not inventing it. I'm building off of like previous research and, and previous perspectives. But in radical circles, it's not, this is not sort of coin of the realm stuff that I can assume people to have. So I just want to, I want to spell it out for a minute. The first part of the first claim here is that um, I think one of the key sort of historical uh, dynamics over the 20th century in particular, of course, this is sort of with the rise of modernity and capitalism in general, but I think this intensified uh, exponentially in the 20th century. And this is something we don't talk about. We don't really address this as a fundamental kind of political dynamic that we have to be uh, responsive to is uh, the intensification of what you might call instrumental rationality. Uh, that's kind of like a technical term. It sounds fancy, complicated. It's not really. Uh, basically, instrumental rationality, this is a term that comes out of Max Weber, sort of a founding, so one of the founders of modern sociology, basically. A little bit, a, a little bit after Marx, more or less kind of same generation, German, German sociologist. Um, he had this theory of different types of rationalities and different types of societies that sort of operate on different types of rationalities, basically. And in a nutshell, his argument is that the rise of modernity, kind of capitalism, bureaucracy, you know, everything we think of as modernity, uh, the, define, kind of the defining rationality of, of modernity in capitalism is instrumental rationality, which basically, it's, it's very simple, it just refers to um, you know, uh, an attitude of efficiency, of whatever is practically, pragmatically most uh, efficient or realistic, basically. It's kind of the shopkeeper's mentality, right? It's um, how, can I, how can I most, how can I most uh, efficiently and optimally accommodate myself to any sort of change in the environment? Right? So basically what is key about instrumental rationality is all you care about is uh, achieving certain ends. Uh, you care about what is, what, what, are the most efficient way, what is the most efficient way that I can, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, all you care about is the efficiency of means. You actually don't question too much or care too much or you're not too invested in ends other than just sort of whatever uh, works best for your own immediate self-interest. So that's instrumental rationality. Um, the idea that people, individuals should basically just live their lives by uh, figuring out how to take care of themselves uh, in their immediate interests the best way possible. There's no larger ethical meaning or goals or values, basically. That's what defines instrumental rationality, um, obsession with means and efficiency, in a nutshell. Um, now, that exists in all human societies. Uh, all humans have to be instrumentally rational in certain ways. Uh, but what Gaber argues is that uh, with the rise of modernity and capitalism, instrumental rationality basically takes over everything. Uh, and most importantly, what you see is the, the fall away of ethical values and of, of, of human life guided by ethical values. And that, mind you, is what most of human history is. Most of human history is societies in which individuals see their lives as basically organized around objective truths or values, whether, mostly God, right? Mostly, this is mostly religion. Um, but for most of human societies ever, humans were not instrumentally rational primarily. They were uh, kind of, they had a kind of ethical substantive rationality, okay? Um, that, uh, you'll see why I'm talking about this and why I think this is so important. That's just kind of a basic primer and kind of definition of, of the terms that I'm talking about. Um, with the rise of capitalism and especially in the 20th century, what happens is in our entire culture becomes basically nothing more than instrumental rationality. And that's basically what you have today. We have no real overarching values that we truly believe in anymore. Um, we, there are no gods. There are no, there, there's no, basically there is, very little that people in, in a country such as the UK or the US, whatever it might be, I'm talking about the, you know, the Western liberal democracies for what it's worth. Um, there's basically nothing anymore that individuals in the UK or the US would really kind of um, 
let's say, risk their life. There's no sort of objective value or truth that people would kind of uh, risk their life for anymore. For instance, that, that's kind of that's a good way to summarize what I'm getting at. That that way of living has disappeared, uh, basically, and it's been replaced completely by the kind of the capitalist mentality, the shopkeeper's mentality of you know how can I make the most money? How can I get by um, most effectively for myself? That's just a pure kind of instrumentally rational ethical vacuum. Um, to me, this is one of the this is one of the biggest problems with capitalism in the 20th century in particular, and and this is something that we don't talk about as activists. The reason we don't talk about this as activists is because all of modern radical activist theory and, and the whole camp, the whole perspective of modern radicalism is firmly embedded within instrumental rationality. It's all instrumental. It's all instrumental rationality. When we talk about leverage, when we talk about organizing, when we talk about strategy, I mean strategy is instrumental rationality par excellence. Activist culture, for the most part, ever since Marx in particular, um, it's basically how can we all get together to uh, defeat you know, the system on this plane of strategic rationality. In other words, we're kind of you know, super-powered, collective, organized shopkeepers um, instead of you know, petty bourgeois uh, shopkeepers. Right? Um, that's one of the key, key kind of background claims that I'm making here. Um, but this has led to the, a basic pacification and, and, and I would argue near extinction of, of key human capacities. With the, with the onset of, of instrumental rationality, what's happened is that we have, I would argue that we have been deformed as human beings in, in, in massive ways that we don't even really confront or try to confront <coughs> as activists, basically. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of talk about what that, exactly what that means in a little bit. Um, but uh, basically what I have in mind in particular is the capacity to hold truly deeply held beliefs uh, and to fight for them apart from short-term calculations of interest. We've lost that. So basically, you know, and, and think about think about yourself. Think about our. We're all guilty of this, right? Like you would not go and join a political organization, even if you believed everything they were saying. If they just seemed like they couldn't get, like they weren't practically efficient, or they had no chance of actually achieving something, you know, you wouldn't take them. We don't. We wouldn't take them seriously. We wouldn't want to join that. Uh, that is kind of how active. That is sort of the activist economy in some sense. Um, so even us, even revolutionaries, like we don't live a life of deeply committed kind of. Uh, dedication to particular objective truths uh, because most of us, you know, most of us don't believe in, a lot of activists, radicals, like, don't believe in God or they, or whatever it might be. Uh, in some, this isn't an attack or criticism on anyone in particular. It's sort of a, a diagnosis of, 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 of culture in general. Um, okay, I, I probably talked about that enough. Um, but other key movements in the, in the 20th century that I think are really crucial is one that the information revolution has still barely been even, I think it's, the, I don't even think the tip of the iceberg has been opened by radical circles. There is an extraordinary kind of uh, social and political power to the, the, the development of information communication technology. It remains almost completely con con contained and kind of pacified in corporate and government circles. And in particular, what I have in mind is sort of, uh, it, what, people, what a lot of people don't really understand is that the information revolution was really, more than anything else, a learning revolution. Uh, like statistics, for instance. Statistics is something that really only uh, comes about in a practical way in like the 1970s. You realize that actually learning from data through statistics uh, is actually really relatively new. For the most part, it is only conducted by people in governments and corporations and, and, a, little, and a few people in academia. Uh, but there's massive stuff that you could do with uh, basically computers and, and in a particular kind of learning about how things work that have yet to even be partially kind of exploited by activists. Um, okay, and, and, uh, and because, of, yeah, okay, so... Uh, I think I think I can kind of move on. I don't want to, I don't want to go too fast, but I also don't want to beat a dead horse. 
but so basically, I think that all of these factors, if you, if you kind of think about all these things and take a step back for a minute, all of these things, I think, I would argue, point in one direction um, toward this, this, this perspective I've been working on for a while, which is thinking about uh, liberation as a kind of dynamic process that can actually be uh, manipulated, increased, or decreased with, with techniques and practices, basically. Um, so if you kind of move away from the traditional kind of strategic perspective on activism, where we're just kind of, uh, you know, we're looking for leverage in the social factory. This is something that we've talked about, right? I actually completely disagree with that. I don't think that there is any leverage to be had anywhere, because I don't think that we even have a society anymore. I think I don't even know if we're really human beings anymore. I, that, that, that's basically kind of the, the, the magnitude of the claim that I'm trying to make, and that's why I'm seeing this in a totally different process, in, in a totally different perspective. What I would argue is that instead, there's no leverage to be had, but all there really is, all we really, all what we call society really is, I think, is uh, so. What we have is social, political, economic institutions, which are basically just machines for distributing flows through bodies. Basically, um, we have been basically dehumanized. We are basically kind of just roped into these overlocking, uh, overlapping, interlocking kind of institutions, uh, diverse institutions, right? Capitalism, racism, uh, white supremacy, patriarchy. Um, all of these like debates about which one is important is like in, not just like offensive and it's insane. I mean, like the point is that there's a massive set of different types of institutions. Uh, they're complex. It's evolved. Uh, the point is that those institutions control everything. It's not people behind them. It's it's institutional realities that have become so much larger than us and so much more complicated than us through evolution. And we are basically all dehumanized objects of these massive institutions. But because they're so massive and because it's all so new, like I said, the 20th century sort of happened like a, a, like a world historical hip, like whiplash. Because it's all so new, we're basically sort of, all of us are sort of trapped unequally, but all of us are, are more or less but unequally trapped in this kind of uh, labyrinth of institutions, which basically all, they really, all these institutions really do, we don't need to completely understand all of them. Um, the point is that society is basically an equilibrium of institutions that uh, make us do certain things in different ways. And they, they, they make us a part of that set of institutions, right? It, uh, uh, and we, I think it's easiest to think about it as distributing flow, different types of flows of energy, right? Whether it be monetary or biochemical even. You know, like our, you know, stress, for instance, it is a chemical. It's something that is produced by institutions in our body. It makes us work. It makes us afraid. It makes, us, it, makes it hard for us to sleep. It, you know, these are, these are all what, what biochemistry has in common with money which, what, and what money has in common with weapons and what, and what weapons has in common with um, mi migrant flows, for instance. What these things all have in common is that they're flows. These are energies, right? Institutions, cap what we call capitalism, the modern world, whatever, is really just a, if you just think about it for a minute as just, a set of, as just machines, diverse, complicated machines that basically just trigger different flows, block different flows, distribute different flows. This, for those of you who, who might be aware, this is sort of a very kind of what you might think of as a Deleuzian uh, way of thinking about uh, society, and it's one that I'm quite partial to. So if you, if you take that, if you see society in that way, instead, notice that that's very different than, than sort of how Marx would see society, or how, I think, arguably, this is very different than how the, ra the, the typical activist would see society. The typical activist sees society as a kind of chessboard or a kind of strategic battlefield where we have to kind of outsmart the corporations and the governments and by people power and organizing, we're going to like uh, have more leverage than them or something. To me, that, that actually is crazy. I think that's totally wrong um, because we're actually not on the same fucking chessboard as David Cameron or, or Barack Obama or, or anyone really. We're not even really on a chessboard because we're all alienated as fuck and we can barely like survive. Uh, so, what, but, what, but, yet, but yet, 
Although we can barely survive, although we can barely take care of ourselves and live anything like we would hope to call a meaningful, dignified life, we, we still function for the system, right? We're clearly still functional entities. Uh, so this way, I think, is, way, is a way more kind of useful way of thinking about it. Um, okay, so uh, the next point, though, is that instrumental rationality, this idea of basically trying to maximize uh, you know, efficiency, just living kind of the, rap, the, the typical, traditional kind of pragmatic lifestyle, um, I would argue that this is one of the key circuits, basically, that holds this sort of system of institutions together. Um, and uh, basically, the question becomes, in this, this, if you actually think about it, this is actually, it might sound like it's only like a slightly different way of thinking about it, but it actually leads to a totally different set of kind of uh, arguments or, or, or implications for how it, one would proceed to make revolution, uh, because it is actually fundamentally different. The question now becomes, we're no longer interested in seeking leverage. What we're now interested in is, it's just a question of how to rewire these flows, right? It's just a matter of how, when, in all the different ways that these institutions cycle through our bodies and fuck with the flows of our bodies, how can we just basically rewire these in ways that we do have access to, that all of us actually have access to in our everyday life? How do we rewire these flows in a way that actually maximizes our own freedom and autonomy and actively steals it from the institutions? But, in a, but specifically in a way that, is fee, that could feasibly uh, generalize or become contagious. In other words, you begin to think about revolution, making revolution as, as a project of how do we become a virus for capitalism? How can we become something that could basically infect the entire kind of body of capitalism uh, like a contagion uh, that would basically kill uh, the, the, the suffering and the, the institutionalized kind of death that is imposed on us and is only getting worse? Um, and, and, and I would just want to stress how different that is on a foundational level than what most activists are thinking and saying in radical political group meetings. Um, so I know that that was a bit long and difficult, um, my, difficult for me. I mean, I, I made it difficult for you all. I'm sorry, sorry about that. Um, but it, but that's sort of just setting up the basics. So how does this lead to uh, what I would argue is a, is, is a feasible theory for actually making revolution in our lifetime? That was sort of the big claim that I made, and I should make good on that, right? Um, Basically, what I would argue is that if we can learn how to rewire the flows, basically, the, 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 uh, the way that institutions modify our flows and the way that we sort of contribute to those institutions and in in the flows that actually we do have control over, um, that, act, that we can actually achieve mass collective change um, by, by learning first how to rewire the flows in ourselves. Um, right? So to carve out, for, to learn techniques and, and a kind of, a political science, really. This is why I call it a political science, because we have to. I think that we have to learn the political science of how we can actually rewire our everyday lives to basically steal energy and time and space for ourselves. Um, and at, and in, the, in learning how to do that, we are at the same time withdrawing it and taking it from the institutions that steal it from us. So, so there's this sort of first question of of actually learning everyday techniques um, that actually work uh, to actually give us more freedom and autonomy and time and space. That's sort of the first step, but the, but the next step, which is you know at the same this takes place at the same time, is to wire our individual liberations into into groups, right? Uh, which is what we're doing in a situation like this. We're sort of already on the on the thread, to, we're on the start to it, um, but I don't think we take seriously enough what what it what it entails and asks for. Um, and but also crucially, the group the groups have to be rewired to feed into the individuals more effectively. Um, that's something that we have our time doing because we're sort of anti-individualistic, and, and that's good, and that comes from a good place. 
but actually we are all kind of locked in individual alienated atomized cells like that is what individualism is whether we like it or not we can't just say we're like we don't support individualism so we're going to pretend that we have like healthy collectives well no we actually individualism is real it's enforced on us like we actually are locked in these tiny little cages uh and we have to accept that as a reality we just have to figure out how to break those cages um but we need we need group support in doing that so we can't like throw away this idea of the individual um it's it, it, it's a reality that we have to get out of uh we can't just imagine it away um next uh, yeah but basically this sort of it's this sort of aggregation process where i think that we can rewire flows that's basically what it comes down to um but a key thing here a, a key sort of part of this argument is that uh, where i'm going with this is that um if you can do this anyone who's ever been a part anyone who's ever had this type of experience realizes that it's this isn't just like this isn't you know folk politics. This isn't like an imaginary process. This is a real, actual kind of psychological and even biochemical process that is real and that fundamentally changes people forever. And so this is what Claire Fontaine calls a, a sort of irreversible anthropological tr transformation. Anyone who's ever been in like a, a serious kind of revolutionary moment, for instance, for me it was Occupy Wall Street. Um, like that's the only thing that ever got me into politics, and it's the only thing that I'm still even. It's the only reason I'm even still talking about politics is because I, in those in that year in that insurrectionary year in Philadelphia and New York. I was fundamentally changed, and I'll never come back from that. I can't go back from that. Um, but that is exactly, that is the process that I'm talking about. It's not because we had good activist meetings and because we had leverage. It's because something happened to my most fundamental wiring um, that has made me unable to ever go back and assimilate into being a normal bourgeois kind of status quo person. And, and so my argument, my contention is that that is a process that we can learn how to make. And we can actually do it. We can actually, there's a science to it. There's a social psychology science to it. And there's that kind of practical cooperative science. We can actually learn how to produce those phenomena. Um, and for me, revolutionary politics will become basically learning how to rewire, to fundamentally rewire ourselves to make us more dangerous, to make us more free, to make us more autonomous, uh, to produce irreversible anthropological transformations in ourselves and in other people. Um, okay, sorry, I have a little bit more. Um, so I'm going to now kind of spell out in detail like how we how we're going to do this, uh, how we could do this. Not, you know, I'm not going to like make directives or anything. Uh, uh, but I want to make I, I, there are a few assumptions in my model. OK, I have a model, if you will, um, I kind of speak like a political scientist in this way. Um, but the, uh, like all models, there are a few assumptions. So if you disagree with any of these assumptions, I'm not going to I'm not going to debate them here. If you disagree with any of these assumptions, then you're not going to buy my argument. But if you agree with these assumptions, then I might be able to convince you. And I won't even talk about them too much, I'll just listen. The first one is that I believe, and I'm going to assume as a premise of my argument, that to be mentally well, basically, and by, men by mentally well, I basically just mean kind of to be, to, to have an actively and sustainably kind of joyous, self-aware, radically honest and creative kind of uh, feeling and attitude and being in the world, uh, to have all of those things is the first moment and, 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 and an absolute prerequisite for liberation, or for becoming radicalized, or for, uh, you know, and, and it, it's sort of an absolute prerequisite and it's necessary. It is the first moment of liberation. Um, if you can't experience basic mental wellness, joy, self-awareness, honesty, and, and your own capacities to be a creative, autonomous being, anyone who, who can't access that, and I would argue that's actually a lot of people with all due respect to, to the world, I mean, it's not like a condescending perspective, I think the world today, the work, everything, actually makes it hard for most people to ever even feel those things all at the same time. Um, but I would argue that you need, people need that as a bare minimum to become radicalized, liberated, whatever. The second is that most people, including all of us, probably most of us, uh, I don't pretend to know any of you, but most people, including most of us, 
are simply not these things nearly as much as truly healthy human beings should be. I think we probably must agree. We all probably all agree. We want these things more. We want them more regularly, and we deserve them more. And we don't have them as we don't have all of these things as well as much as we wish. Uh, my third assumption is that anyone who experiences an increase in these things um, will want to continue whatever caused it. So this is a basic assumption. If you sh if you show someone a, a method uh, or something to do, something concrete that they can do, that will actually make them feel joyous, self-aware, honest, and make them feel in touch with their creative power and autonomous powers. Anything you can do to make someone actually if you, any, if you can do something that produces that in someone, that person will want that, uh, and they'll want to continue it, and they'll even fight to continue it. Uh, if you can really show them that they can have it, that they can feel it, uh, and that we actually know we can learn how to produce this for ourselves and for each other. I'm assuming that people will want more of that if they can feel it. The fourth assumption I'm making is that uh, people who, uh, who have these things will survive and flourish more than people who don't. That's kind of like a technical assumption for my model. Uh, this is kind of like an, it's sort of like a vaguely evolutionary kind of model in some sense. But um, uh, that, that's, I'm assuming that people who have these things are gonna be better, generally better able to do all things uh, because these are the criteria that help people do things basically. Um, and I hate to be macabre, but like people are actually dying from lack of these things, right? Like there's been a massive increase in suicide, especially among young people. I mean, this like is this just boggles my mind. Like, uh, uh, you know, people who lack these things, even if they have money, even if they have like social status, even if they have like racial privileges, things like this. If you don't have, it, people can reach a point where they have so few of, of these basic kind of mentally mental wellness things that they actually die. We actually lose them. Um, so, so okay, so. These are all just premises. Um, if you accept those premises, I would argue, my main proposition here is that I actually think about 100 people could um, spark and foster what, what I would call a kind of cultural insurrection that would actually lead to um, you know, uh, full, complete revolution, full communism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, everything for everyone uh, within about a generation. I actually think about 100 people could uh, produce a revolution uh, in which everyone has everything, basically. Um, now, how, how on earth would that work? Would that work? Um, this is where sort of the human strike comes in. Basically, I think that Claire Fontaine and, and Jacoon and groups such as these sort, of, these sort of kind of fringe radical groups, for some reason, especially coming from France, actually there's a good sort of political history reason for that I won't go into. Um, but in any event, I think that these groups are basically dancing around the answer. Um, but, and, and the fact that activists kind of take Jacoon and Invisible Committee and Claire Fontaine, activists kind of see these groups as like laughable, uh, when I say I like these types of things, people literally sometimes laugh at me. Uh, at, at Fast Forward Fest, literally at, uh, over beers one night after the meeting, I was talking about something and someone literally laughed at me and said, go read The Invisible Committee. Uh, like these things are not uh, sort of accepted as like strategic, like serious uh, ideas, okay? But, uh, but I actually think that that's actually symptomatic. The fact that activists laugh at this stuff and dismiss it actually shows exactly why it, it fills precisely the hole that is making activists um, more or less useless, with, with all due respect. Um, and so what is the human strike, right? I mean, we can, we can talk about this or debate this, maybe people have different readings, but the basic idea of the human strike, and this is kind of the, the larger politics of Dacoon and Invisible Committee more generally, is in a nutshell, just simply fucking refuse to do anything that doesn't give you joy. Uh, refuse to acknowledge the existence of anything false. Uh, become zealously devoted to caring for yourselves and your comrades. Uh, and, and basically just support this and join into it, feed into it wherever and whenever and however you can. Um, and I, I think a crucial point that, that Claire Fontaine mentions in the foreword to the human strike, uh, it's just a kind of throwaway line in there, but I think it's, it's key for us, is uh, the idea that of just coordinating these gestures, 
that's kind of where I think the organizational element comes in. Um, so basically, uh, what Clarify came, I mean, what, what, that book, what that reading that I suggested we read for this week, what it basically argues is that if we learn to militantly refuse uh, anything that doesn't give us joy, that that itself is a kind of strike behavior, uh, that if we could learn to only do that and not sort of do all this bullshit like meetings and, and bickering and like bugging each other to do work that we don't actually want to do, if we could actually just focus on as militantly and creatively as possible, um, refusing to do anything that doesn't give us joy, and we actually make a, an art and a science out of that together, um, that that itself is really all there is to do, that there's nothing else to do. This is why they, they use the, uh, Takoon somewhere has a chapter called sort of how is it to be done? And that's a kind of play on you know, Lenin's famous question of what is to be done. Basically, the, the, the radical argument I'm putting forward is, it, and, and this is with Takoon and, and, and Claire Fontaine in this sort of trajectory, is that there is nothing to be done. And that all the things that activists think they have to do to sort of solve the world, that all of that is just instrumental rationality. That's all, that's activists just sort of uh, overheating on the train tracks of instrumental rationality, um, going nowhere because it's precisely invested in the main sickness that modernity and capitalism is, which is trying to like achieve ends by maximizing certain means. Um, but what, what Claire Fontaine and Takuna and groups like this are arguing is basically exactly what Max Weber also argued at the, at the, you know, at the turn of the 20th century which is that we should basically live according to an ethically substantive rationality. That's a kind of fancy sociological term, uh, basically just meaning to live uh, by sincere conviction to a particular belief of something being objectively true. Uh, like, because no one really does this anymore, it, that is so sort of, that's such an extinct way of being, um, that if you simply try to do everything in your life according to some objective truth that you actually would fight to the death for, if you actually, if we could actually learn how to do that, we, well, first of all, we would become crazy people, right? I mean, this would not be, this is not easy, right? I know most of us think that, you know, we have, we have beliefs and we have convictions. So I'm not, I'm not saying you don't have beliefs or convictions. Most of us think that we do, and we, and we do in some sense. Um, but if you actually, in every part of your life, uh, lived as militantly as possible uh, in defense of those convictions, even when other people aren't looking, kind of basically almost like a kind of religious attitude, but not necessarily with the God involved, um, if you actually live by sincere conviction to what you think is objectively true, uh, you, would, you would become a crazy person. But if we all did that together, we could actually change history because Weber, Weber shows that this is actually the only thing that can change history, is when you actually have human beings who actually believe in the objective truth of something and will orient everything in their life to that objective truth. Um, we, as human beings, have more, that more or less has been extinguished. That's like not really a way of living in modern life. And it's precisely because capitalism has, has enforced so many kind of ethical compromises. Um, so I'm not saying we all have to become saints, but what I'm saying is that if we see this point, if we see the basic point, anything we can do, any tactics, techniques, or just ways of living that we can develop that basically make ourselves even marginally or incrementally more like, um, uh, like we're actually organizing our lives around uh, object, some objective truth, which I would argue the objective truth should just be basically our own joy and our own uh, sort of humanity, right? Uh, this idea of human strike. Uh, the, the, the French is actually grand humain, which is actually very different than human. Human strike sounds like we're going to stop being human. It sounds like this kind of like uh, nihilist, kind of anarcho-nihilist like uh, rhetoric of like we're going we're gonna to stop being human. I, I, in the French, I actually think it's the opposite. It's, it's more like striking in a humane way. Uh, which is actually kind of different, and it's very consistent with kind of with our like care uh, rhetoric, right? Um, if we just basically do that as intensely as possible uh, and do nothing else, 
but we make it spread. Uh, and we, but we actually learn the tactics for doing that optimally. Uh, that's something that basically in the history of radical politics has, nev has never been tried before. Um, and that's something, that's something to, to reflect on. Um, so uh, how would we do this? Uh, basically, we would maintain a public organizational infrastructure, not to quote unquote organize. Basically, we wouldn't do any more organizing. We wouldn't do any more activism. What we would do is we would basically do research and development, like practice, actually experiment with um, learning how liberation, like what actually produces joy in people, what actually produces feelings of power in people, what actually produces people's capacities. We would basically just learn these as a kind of social technology, and then we would go around fucking doing it throughout our lives and, and with all of the people that we meet everywhere. Um, and then all this life that we steal from the institutions, we would basically just communize for our own joy and pleasure and uh, satisfaction. Um, but we would, but that, that circle of joy and pleasure and satisfaction would be expanded uh, because we would have an institutional, a basic institutional infrastructure where we could allow more and more people to join this, this sort of circle of uh, kind of stolen life uh, that, that is kind of taken from the institutions. We would support and publicize and politicize already existing human strike behaviors. I mean, there's massive kind of human strike behavior out there. Um, one of my favorite examples is like uh, shoplifting blogs on Tumblr. There's like a massive like subculture on Tumblr. These are like totally non-political like teenagers and stuff like this um, who have shoplifting blogs and they just they just talk about what they shoplift. They share tactics. They share you know the, they they share the pictures of what they get and stuff like this. Massive cultures of like human strike resistance that are not political. They're not they don't identify with us. We don't identify with them. But all these types of diverse activities and phenomena going on. Uh, we could, as an organization, um, politicize them, help them, support them, and identify with them, and build that circle uh, as one circle. Um, and then we would use information technology um, in ways that it hasn't even begun to be used by radical circles, in particular to actually share these technologies. So, like, we wouldn't be recruiting, we wouldn't be having events where we like invite other radical groups to come to them. I'm personally, I, I support it. I want to help out, whatever. Uh, but that, that's not like my vision of like like that. I don't. I just don't think that's going to make a revolution. Um, I think what actually would make revolution is if we actually learned specific tactics and practices for diverse types of situations that we could actually give to people and say, this will go, this will actually get, give you more freedom in your life uh, and it will be fun and it will make you cooler and better and happier and allow you to do everything that you want to do, uh, whether we like it or not. Um, and by doing it, you're going to be joining kind of a, a culture with us. Um, uh, yeah, uh, that is actually like a, a a lot of people say that Chikun and Human Strike and all this stuff is like impractical or it's idealistic or it's romantic, um, that it's just kind of fantasy anarchist bullshit. Um, but actually, I actually think it's it's more realistic and concrete than most sort of mainstream radicalism, uh, which actually doesn't have specific technologies. I see this as actually producing specific technologies for liberation, sharing them, and then actually building a massive resistant culture around that. Um, so. Okay, the, the last point um, is basically just how does this actually lead to revolution in our lifetime? The reason that this leads to revolution in our lifetime is because this is a model for revolutionary change that is actually consistent with individual level needs and, and capacities and desires. The, to me, the main problem with most radical activism is that it assumes we have certain resources that we don't actually have anymore. It assumes that we're already human beings. But I, I really don't think, I think that we're actually not even really human beings anymore. We are like bare minimum functioning like, uh, like sacks of flesh that can barely do the work that we're supposed to do. 
Seriously, like, if you take this seriously, what you realize is that simply learning how we and people around us can actually become more human, if we can actually break that up into reproducible, specific things that people can do, and, and actually politicize that as revolutionary resistance to the institutions, what, what's unique about that is that it actually, people will actually want more of it. It actually works. The problem with most radicalism is that we don't have anything to fucking offer anyone when it comes to it. We, we don't. No. So, so we, we want people to be more radical. We want people to join our movements. We want movements to blow up. We want all these things. But we don't have anything to offer anyone that is going to make their lives better. And in fact, the political science research actually shows that radicalism makes people's lives worse. This is something people don't understand. It, it's, a, it's a sort of illusion from the Marxist tradition that, that, radical, that seeing society in a radical way is liberating. It's actually not. There's massive psychology research. Did you, did you know this? That actually see, seeing, seeing your society as illegitimate is actually a massive psychological cost. It actually makes you suffer. It's actually harder for people to see. It actually it causes pain. It's actually easier to believe in stereotypes. Even, even if you're a, a sort of a underprivileged minority. It, research shows it is easier for you to believe that you have less value than someone else simply because it makes sense out of the world. Asking people to believe that insti- all the institutions are unjust is asking people to, to not only do something that is confusing for them, it's asking them to make their lives even fucking harder. What I'm saying is that we can actually produce technologies that make people's lives better, and we actually don't ask anything else from them. They don't need to come to our fucking meetings. They don't need to fucking give a shit about what we're talking about. All we're saying is we're interested in making our lives fucking better, and we know how to fucking do it. And here you go. If you want to do it, you can do it too. If we do that, people will fucking transform themselves, and, and in doing so, in the contagion that that would spread, you, what you would do is you would unleash and sort of uh, 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 produce a kind of completely uncontrollable, un- uncontrollable kind of contagion. We would become a kind of, by allowing life to reform, life would actually become a virus that would potentially overtake and destroy this sort of institutional death that we're all kind of, just kind of stump- uh, suffering through. Um, I think that actually has what political scientists would call uh, consistent micro-foundations, meaning it, it, it's a macro-level model that actually fits with what people want and what people uh, do or don't do. Um, so just, I'll just cut it off there. Thank yeah. you, folks. I, I know I've I, I tested your patience. I, I sort of spoke more than I was supposed to. That's really rude of me, um, and I am sorry for that. Um, that's bad of me. I'm sorry. I enjoyed it. It's fine. No problem. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.